Welcome to Owens Alchemy. Today we have the great pleasure of welcoming uh, a friend of mine that I got to actually spend time with and hang out with, uh, Jeffrey Drum, the host of Land of Kim. And uh, Jeffrey's got some super amazing information that he's about to put out. We just absolutely loved the last time he was on. Yeah, just love it. Already been working on it also on myself on the side because this is, it's absolutely perfect. I don't know why this is a, a, a just now getting brought out, but yeah. Pleasure it's a, it's to a have very, Jeffrey. It's a very, very exciting time in Egyptology, just sort of generally speaking with like the opening of the new Egyptian Grand Museum and all this stuff. And I just happened to be in touch with some people that took some samples back in like 2016. So, you know, or 2012, 2016 timeframe. And the episodes that I've put out recently are all documented with like empirical research, stuff that's going on today that is proving the chemistry of the ancient Egyptians. And this is what I put together for our slide deck today is like, it's a combination of modern research that's also going to talk about um, analytical equipment. So we, since we've been talking about that kind of in the background offline, um, so XRF analysis, ICPMS analysis, which is inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry analysis, and then also um, <laughs> electron microscopy. So they're doing all these mm -hmm. sorts of analytical methods to analyze samples from ancient Egypt. And I have a whole bunch of stuff in this slide deck. If you want to fire it up, we can go ahead and jump into it. Freaking fantastic. Yeah, okay. So I, I even forgot what I put in here. <laughs> so the first thing that we're <laughs> going to look at, dude. Um, so I've been in contact with a group called the Asita Project, which is a Russian research team that went and toured with Yusuf back in like 2010, <laughs> 2012, 2016, way before I ever went to Egypt. So they have the same contact in Egypt and the same guide that I've been working with over the past four years since I've been there. And in the process, it looks like they took probably 50 different samples from inside the pyramids, <laughs> around, around various locations. And now this is done illegally. So let me go ahead and say that. And it is very, very risky business to do what they're doing. Um, so this was done again probably 13 years ago now when they took these samples. And now it's finally coming to light because I reached out to them, I introduced myself, you know, we have some mutual contacts in Egypt. So I explained, Hey, I've been working with the same guy that we've been, you've been working with, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any way that I can get a copy of these samples so I can take a look at this material and start to analyze it? And the lady was very, very nice. We exchange information. And of course it's an anonymous group and all this stuff was done again, 13 years ago, the way it works in Egypt, unless they catch you in the act with it or something like that, there's no way to actually prove that any of this was actually happening. So again, it's just very, very risky. And I certainly wouldn't recommend. Right. And at the same time, they're going to deny that, that the samples are from the pyramid. And because sure, of course, yeah. Immediately 100%. 100%. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. why. So it's kind of a catch 22, right? Right. Which is why at the sites, they're, they're guards all over the place. And tourists, usually if you go to the sites, the, the guards will be pretty much on your ass, like not on your ass, but you'll have a, you have what's called, um, you know, tourist security. And they say that these guys are there and they have MP4s, you know, they're walking around in suits. 
It looks like straight out of the 1970s. They all have these big Burt Reynolds mustaches, you know, these fucking polyester <laughs> suits. It's dude, it's hilarious. All you know, it's exactly what you would expect from a Middle Eastern like bodyguard type thing, right? So they got these polyester suits. It's fucking 110 degrees outside, and they're wearing a suit out in the middle of the desert, and they all have MP4s with them, you know, like. So they're all they're all packing some serious heat, and they say that these guys are there for your security, right? To make sure that you're safe, but it's also there to make sure that your ass doesn't act up when you're on the sites, and make sure that you're not like taking stuff and doing all this kind of stuff. So they're kind of aware of that. But also, one of the good things about touring Egypt is that the guides and the security personnel cannot go inside of the structures with you. They send you in by yourself to go inside the of the actual pyramid. Yeah, they don't they don't no security inside no. the structure. So other than the great pyramid. So the great the great pyramid does have a security guy who is inside there. Um, he basically stands in the top of the grand gallery. But like out in Dashur, for example, when you're touring the Red Pyramid, which we're going to talk about here in a second, and the Bent Pyramids, you're going up there. And, dude, it's a, it's a pain in the ass to get down inside of these pyramids, right? It's this very, very steep shaft. It's about three by three shaft, and you're crawling down. I mean, it takes 10 minutes to get down inside these things, and it's a very arduous task to get inside of a pyramid. So, of course, the Your guys – are basically and it, a sample by the time you're out of there. You know, again, so I've spent probably Yusuf and I, my guide, um, you know, I've been inside of the Red Pyramid for probably a cumulative about four hours, which is a very, very long time. If you think about just being inside of a very small chamber, when most tourists will go in there and they're in and out in five minutes, you know, they'll walk in, they'll walk around and they'll walk right out. But I've been in there for, you know, a pretty substantial amount of time. And the vast majority of that was alone. And there's nobody in there. So you could basically technically do whatever you wanted in there. And then you just have to be very, very careful coming out that they don't catch you with some samples in your fucking suitcase or something when you get back to the hotel. Because there's there's security personnel at the hotel and all this kind of stuff. So traveling to Egypt is a very interesting experience because there's militarized police all over the place. Just because it is, it's a Middle Eastern country. And there's certain like security concerns and all this kind of stuff. So there's there's military police all over the place, not to mention the fact that they're also protecting the sites from potential terrorism and all this stuff. So they have to have active military police on the site. So there's a lot of military personnel. So generally speaking, when I go there, all I want to do is just be a tourist. That's all I am. Nothing to see here. You know, as far as they all know, I'm just a science fiction writer who writes crazy stuff about the pyramids and they don't know who I am. They don't need to know that I'm doing research. I'm just a tourist and I'm out there and just flying under the radar. And that's how I try to do it because Egypt for me is also a vacation. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm not going out there to try to get like fucking detained at the airport for taking back like some samples when I could just very easily talk to people who have already done this kind of stuff. And there are certainly lots and lots of people that have done this under the radar over the years. So anyway, long story short, I reached out to the Center Project, and we started exchanging some information because they started watching my YouTube channel, and they were very interested in my research as well. So the team was very interested in sharing their research with me. So that brings us to what we're first going to talk about, which is, so it turns out that the Red Pyramid of Dashur was painted with a chemically resistant coating compound. 
And we now have a chemical analysis of that paint and documentation that it 100% does exist. And this is something that you're never going to hear in the archaeological record that the pyramids of Egypt were painted. And the red pyramid was painted red. The entire exterior of the structure was painted with this coating compound. And I'll, I'll get to the chemical analysis of that here in just a second. But what we're going to start with is calcium copper silicate, which is called Egyptian blue. And this is the first synthetic pigment that was ever produced in the archaeological record. So we know that Egypt is the birthplace of chemistry. And they were making this blue pigment. And they had to be making it on an industrial scale because you find this paint all over the place. So you can't just make like one small handful of it and then think that that's enough. You know, you have to be making thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of either the dry pigment or the paint itself to be able to supply the entire paint industry. So in and of itself, here we have proof of dynastic Egyptian industrial chemistry. Obviously, I imply that the Egyptian pyramids came around before the dynastic Egyptian civilization and that the dynastic civilization were inheritors of this chemistry, but they were just doing it on a much smaller scale than was being done previously in the Egyptian pyramids by the civilization that came before. So long story short, we start applying modern chemistry and modern analytical technology to calcium copper silicate, and they found some very interesting stuff. Click, click the mouse. So calcium copper silicate is not just a paint. And it turns out this shit has some very, very interesting properties. And I'm pretty sure I can't see it on my phone, but what you're looking at is a research paper. And they tested Egyptian blue by blasting it with electricity. And it turns out, and you, you blast it with light. And when you irradiate Egyptian blue with photons, it emits more than 100 times more photons than it absorbs. And it also emits light in a near infrared range. If you're, if you're reading that slide deck, I'm pretty sure that's what it's saying. So when you, when you sh shine light or electricity into Egyptian blue, so if you put a charge into Egyptian blue, it is going to uh, fluoresce and produce light. And if you shine light on Egyptian blue, it emits more photons than it absorbs. It's, it's a 70% tr transmission rate, and it can emit 100 times more photons than it absorbs. So it's a very, very interesting material that has properties, not just a paint. So this is actually a functional material that was being produced by this ancient civilization. So it turns out that this could be possibly the per first fluorescent compound that was ever produced. So click on the next one. And so they did an examination and they did, they were looking at the molecular structure of Egyptian blue. And this is what Egyptian blue is. The molecular structure is incredibly complex. So it's calcium copper silicate. It's CU, um, C-A-C-U-S-I-O-4-S-I-4-O-10. So there's one copper, there's one calcium, there's four silicon, and 10 oxygen atoms arranged in this lattice that looks like C80 or C60. Have you ever seen these really complicated copper, um, not copper, but carbon, carbon molecules? It's arranged in a lattice like this. And they were taking this molecule and they were printing it in nano sheets. So they were taking Egyptian blue and making it into a printed nano sheet and then click the next slide. And they turned Egyptian blue 
into an anode material for a lithium ion battery. So this is a next research paper where two different groups, I forget who was doing this. One of this is from like um, the Royal Society of Chemistry, which is a very, very interesting oh, group. I if you know anything about all the time. They well, do so the RS, such amazing papers. So the, the, the RSC also has a very ancient lineage of being connected directly to the alchemists of the medieval period. The RSC is literally the modern um, manifestation of the ancient alchemical groups that dated back to Egypt. So all of this chemistry and alchemy comes directly from Egypt. It started in Egypt. It was buried in Egypt. Then it goes underground during the Roman period. They were absolutely still doing chemistry during the Roman period. Because look at um, like the Lysurgis cup, right? This cup that's infused with gold nanoparticles. And it has this reddish hue and certain, sometimes it looks red, green, sometimes it looks red. So they were doing very sophisticated chemistry to make gold nanoparticles during the Roman period. Because we have this cup that has all these crazy uh, properties. So we know that they were doing chemistry. Then chemistry goes underground during the medieval period. And then we have the alchemist stage where they're encoding all of this chemical knowledge into these depictions and symbols and stuff so that they could protect themselves from getting burned at the stake for practicing witchcraft or whatever they thought they were doing. So then as the modern industrial revolution starts to come around, the Royal Society of Chemistry was developed and that was the establishment of modern day chemistry it was basically the beginning of the RSC. So they have a connection back to ancient alchemy that dates way, 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 way back. And they are the modern lineage of this ancient civilization in terms of the chemists. And they do research. And I find stuff on their page all the time that is directly connected to the Egyptian pyramids, such as what they're doing here with testing Egyptian blue and making lithium ion battery anodes with this material. So again, this is a compound that according to conventional history is about 5,000 years old. And modern science is doing all kinds of crazy shit with Egyptian blue. And they're finding out it is not only a light emitting compound, again, emitting a hundred more times, a hundred times more photons than it absorbs, but it can also be used for all sorts of nano uh, technology. So it's a very functional material that was being produced in vast quantities. And this is basically the premise of my research, right? That the, the civilization that, do you happen to know if there's any tie to them, uh, to the cobalt blue uh, that's so huge right now also, and that the Russians are producing them glasses that are the cobalt blue? Is there any, uh, do you know? Oh, so um, uh, I forget what the, are you talking about the glasses that allow you to see the electromagnetic field? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I have a, a, a not a friend, but I've, I've been in contact with this guy with the, the Tarot Museum. And he makes those, he has those glasses. I forget what the compound is, um, but it, yeah, it basically allows you to see the human aura. And they did photography with this stuff back in the day. And you can wear these glasses and look and see the human electromagnetic energy. They call it the aura, right? But it's basically the electromagnetic energy field that surrounds the body because the heart is an electromagnetic yeah. energy, gen it's electricity generator. So your body has all of this electrical, you know, um, energy permeating out of your skin all at all, all, all points. And it allows you to see this stuff. But I also gave the guy the idea. I was talking to him about these glasses and I was like, has anybody ever done any photography of the monuments? 
like taking those glasses and putting it on a camera oh. and, and taking taking pictures of the ancient structures around the planet. So this guy took his camera and he went to Europe and took pictures of some of the cathedrals and stuff. And the, the structures also have an electromagnetic energy field that's coming off of them, which is also directly related to my research and that test that we did with the electromagnetic energy field machine that shows the stones have certain properties in proximity to the electromagnetic energy field. So the, the stone either transmits the field or it absorbs it in the crystal, like the red granite absorbs the Earth's electromagnetic energy field and it generates ultrasound. So it's, it's people always talk about the pyramids and the piezoelectric property, but yeah. it's actually the inverse. There's something called the inverse piezoelectric property, which is where if you stimulate quartz crystal with electricity, it generates ultrasonic sound vibrations, which is exactly what was happening in the Egyptian pyramids. Okay, so the way this whole thing works, and I haven't explained this yet on my channel even yet, but so the body of the stone, right, the mass of the stone absorbs the magnetic component of the electromagnetic energy field. And it allows the electric component to get transmitted into the quartz crystal. And we demonstrated that in our experiment where when you put limestone on top of the electromagnetic energy field machine, you can put a copper wire and the limestone will allow a discharge of electricity into the copper wire. But if you take that limestone away and put the copper wire directly on the machine, nothing happens. So without the stone, the electromagnetic energy is combined into the field. But when you put the stone on top of it, the substrate material, the matrix of the stone itself, absorbs that magnetic component. And this is exactly what happens when limestone forms naturally in geology. You'll see that limestone formations are oriented based on the Earth's electromagnetic energy field. So limestone does this naturally. It absorbs this magnetic component. And it allows that, but with the red granite, the red granite has quartz crystal in it. So instead of that electricity being discharged out of the stone into the wire, it gets absorbed by the quartz crystal, which causes the inverse piezoelectric property to come into effect. And that quartz crystal generates ultrasonic sound vibrations. So we've always heard that the pyramids are somehow connected to sound. And I get into explaining this in my second book, which is what I'm, I'm currently working on. Wow. And, and, and that does all, it, it, it do all sorts of special stuff and it's all related to chemistry, <clears throat> but we sort of got off on, got off on a serious tangent there. Yay. Wow. Yeah. Pretty like awesome that, stuff. Right. I, I don't know if you've seen actually the, the, uh, presentation I gave in, uh, uh, Flatoberfest. Yeah, I did watch but, it. Yeah. Like, you, then you got to realize how much that just absolutely yeah. matches everything I've been working on. Oh, I'm having such a hard time sitting right now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty wild stuff, man. Do like, even when I'm putting together these presentations, it's, it's, it's edge of the seat type, type stuff for me too. And like, I'll watch back my videos and it's, it's very exciting for me to just be a part of this process because again, discovering stuff like this, I found these research articles 
about the properties of Egyptian blue when I was putting together that episode because I was going to talk about it anyway because it's a very sophisticated compound and I had no idea that it had all these different properties but I started doing some research and I found two different articles where they're talking about the phosphorescent properties and again these different nanomaterials that are being made with this compound that was being produced industrially by this ancient civilization and nobody ever talks about this stuff I mean this is, uh, for me this is like groundbreaking news but again it's just something that's really off the radar and not really discussed so we can go on to the next well, one and, and also in the mainstream what they try to put that out as is basically they ground they they ground up lapis lazuli oh yeah so and, also yeah in these articles they talk about how oh this this compound was most likely produced accidentally by these, these the people that were making it right they didn't understand what they were doing they accidentally stumbled across the formula and they give some rough estimations of how this stuff was made but so regardless of how they were making it they had to be doing it in some sort of industrial process like it's not like you can again like i go back to if you see how prevalently so for example this is the the top of the ceiling of the chamber of the pyramid of Winis, and the t entire top of this chamber was painted with Egyptian blue. All of those stars were painted with Egyptian blue. So click to the next one. Oh, could you imagine seeing that? At so, is, so is this what happens inside of those chambers? Because again, the electromagnetic energy field is flowing through the earth into that paint. Again, this came, I think the paint came around much later. I don't think that was original part of the structure. The dynastic Egyptians came around later and did some stuff with it. But just imagine that, right? as a potential property of this compound is that if you paint this on stuff and then it's infused with that electromagnetic energy, this stuff could come to life. So again, it's a pretty amazing property of this ancient compound that we're just now finding about now. But again, you wouldn't hear this in the, the discussion of conventional archeology. span Fantastic. Do you want me to click? Yes, yeah, so you can go to the, yeah, keep on going. <clears throat> All right. So this is a picture of that paint found on the casing stones of the Red Pyramid. So this is in Dashur, and you can see that this is one of the remaining casing stones. So they pulled all the casing stones off the pyramid, and there's a bunch of these yeah. things just, la just laying around the outside. If you just walk around the outside, there's casing stones just all over the place where they used to quarry these things and break them down and use them in different buildings. But you can look at that, and it's a thick layer on there. I have a bunch of pictures of this stuff, and it's a super thick layer on there, and it's a very textured material. It has a super rough texture to it. So whatever it is, and I'll explain exactly what it is here in just a second, is uh, it's a coating compound, and they applied a super thick layer of it. And I did some estimations on how many gallons of paint that it would require to – I forget what it is, but it's like – it's thousands of gallons of paint. So imagine having to paint the entire outside of a pyramid. The, the, pyramid, the pyramids are huge. And I, I did a rough estimation, and it's like 400,000 square feet or something like that. I forget what the exact number is, but it's about 400,000 square feet, you know, the entire exterior of the pyramid in square footage. So that's a the, lot of square uh, foot. That's a lot of square footage. <clears throat> The Luxor, you can kind of get an idea of this from the Luxor because they pay something like $100,000 a week to get the wind, the glass cleaned on their pyramid. Right. There is always yeah, so again, somebody 
Right. Well, that's a, that's a perfect example of the industrial scale applications that are required, even just to maintain these structures, not let alone build them, but again, even just painting this thing, right? So it's a huge undertaking to produce the volume of paint that you would need to paint this thing. And they also say that the Sphinx could have also been painted. There's some evidence that the Sphinx was also painted red, which could have been this same kind of paint. So if you keep going, so the Acida project also did a chemical analysis of this material here. And it turns out that it is predominantly, so there's some calcium in there, there's some oxygen in there, but it is predominantly, and if you go to the next slide, they also did some x-ray fluorescence of this material that shows you, again, this is what I love because it's modern, high-tech analytical equipment that is literally giving you an ability to see the ancient chemistry. So this is x-ray fluorescence showing the different elements that are in that sample. So there's aluminum, there's magnesium, there's calcium, but it's predominantly silicon and sulfur. And if you go to the next slide, they show the full chemical analysis. And this is a <clears throat> couple of different samples that they took of this material. And if you look, the, ma the, the majority of the composition is uh, <clears throat> sulfur sulfur. I think it's sulfur trioxide and silicon dioxide. However, sulfur trioxide is usually a gas, right? And you can use sulfur trioxide to make sulfuric acid, which is exactly what I have proposed was happening in the Great Pyramid of Giza. So here in this chemical analysis, we have evidence that the ancient civilization absolutely had knowledge of sulfur trioxide. However, here it's in its solid polymer form. So they not only had sulfur trioxide gas, but they had sulfur trioxide polymer. And this coating compound is a silicon and sulfur copolymer. So if, you, if you're taking a look at the chemical analysis there, you can see the percentages and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So if you click to the next slide, I started investigating silicon and sulfur polymers. And I found, once again, from the Royal Society of Chemistry, where they made a process for coating surfaces with a copolymer made from sulfur and dicyclopentadiene. So dicyclopentadiene is this waxy molecule that they use today. But you could very easily substitute that with silicon. So take dicyclopentadiene out of the equation and put silicon back in there. So a process for coating surfaces with a copolymer made from sulfur and silicon. And this describes how if you use sulfur trioxide polymer form, the solid polymer form, you can make a coating compound that is chemically resistant, and it also is self-repairable using heat. So if you scratch the surface of it and heat it, it will self-repair, and it'll, it'll, it'll self-maintain and repair any scratches or damages to the surface. And that's what the abstract of that paper talks about. So again, this is modern chemistry giving us an indication of what this ancient chemistry could have possibly been applied for. So the red pyramid was sealed and coated with a coating compound made from sulfur and silicon that was chemically resistant and could self-repair. So if there was damage to the exterior, apply heat to it and that compound just you know, kind of melts and repairs itself. 
That is absolutely amazing. And the second self-repairing story I've heard in just a couple days uh, where I was just listening to uh, 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 analysis of Roman concrete and they were talking about the they thought that some of these things they had mixed in there was because they did shitty work. And it turns out that uh, like there's a calcite element and something else. And that when it would when pieces would break, it would self heal just like this. Yeah, yeah. It's again, so Roman concrete, again, that's that's chemistry. It's super sophisticated chemistry that allows these reactions to occur where if the compound breaks, you know, the polymer repairs itself or whatever it might be, or I don't know exactly the mechanisms of operation that make this stuff happen. Um, But again, it's, it's very sophisticated chemistry that we're just now finding out the properties and the capabilities of these, these compounds. So again, this is just another Shout out to the Aceta Project, and again, I, I'm very, very thankful that they've trusted me with this material because all they did was take the samples. They took the samples, they got the analysis done, but nobody has ever really interpreted any of this stuff. So I was, I was super, super grateful for them, the being willing to give me this stuff and to trust me to interpret it with, with real integrity, man, because it's, it's taken me a long time to go through all this stuff and really thoroughly understand what all this stuff is about. And um, it, it's been a long process, especially my, my next video that's coming out, which is the third mm-hmm. part of the, the chemical analysis of the red pyramid staining. And it's been, it's been just a very laborious process. And I've been like, I talking to people in Russia and I've been talking to the guy that actually ran the samples on all this stuff. So he's, he's the lab tech that did the x-ray wow. fluorescent just because I, I had questions, you know, and like, I, I want to get to the bottom of this stuff. And so we'll, we'll talk about some stuff here in just a second, but if you want to move on, that was my, that's the red pyramid paint, paint compound. And again, we have chemical analysis of it. Now we know it exists. So this is not even speculation or anything like that. This isn't fantasy. This is actual chemistry, actual like archeology, span man. This is real, real research that I've been doing in Egypt. And thankfully, again, I'm, I'm in like touch with the group. Better understanding of the lattice work of things, doesn't it? Well, I mean, if you again, yes, yeah, absolutely. If you if you look at that the the molecular structure of Egyptian blue, man, that is a, an incredibly latticed molecule. It's a, it's a very the structure of that thing is what gives it the remarkable properties. So the way that molecule is formed is what gives it all of its functionality in terms of a nanomaterial because nanomaterials have all that lattice framework. And that's what makes these nanomaterials functional is kind of that, that internal lattice molecular structure. So it's it's just a very functional material. with, uh, with, With even just on a simple level, when, when something's structured different, it reacts different. Straight right. up. And you're creating a uh, much more sophisticated lattice work. This is just absolutely amazing. And you can't tell me that, that this is accidental. That's insane. Right. right. It's a travesty, man. It really, really is that that's, that's the explanation that conventional history gives to this stuff. It's just because nobody's investigating this stuff. So, you know, it, it's very compartmentalized, right? You know, archeologists, they aren't looking at all this kind of research because there's no reason for them to connect these two things. But for me, there is. So I've come across some pretty interesting stuff. All right. So next up. So go back one. All right. So this is the inside of the red pyramid of Dashur. 
And if you look at that image on the left, can you see how the staining pattern in the top of the chamber flows through that connecting shaft? It flows down the wall and it flows into that connecting shaft. Oh yeah. Can you see, can you see, can you see that pattern moving yeah. from the upper part of the chamber and you see that dark stain flowing through the shaft there? Yeah, absolutely. And then if, and it gets okay. darker, 100%. Yeah, so if you, if you look at the bottom left corner there also, you see that wave pattern? That it yep. looks like a wave splashed up there in that corner. And here on the other side, on this wall coming to you, you can also see a continuance of that wave pattern coming towards you in this direction in that picture. Yep. Yep. Okay. So we demonstrated that pattern in an experiment with a tub that has the exact same dimensions as this chamber. And we put a water spout coming out from where I think the water inlet is, which is at the bottom of the shaft. And it makes that exact same wave pattern in the tub. So the water crashes into that, that corner over there, creating a wave pattern in that corner. And it comes around and it creates another wave crashing pattern in the, the opposite corner. So we literally sure, sure. demonstrated, we demonstrated this exact same fluid dynamic pattern in an experiment. And so also what you see there is the fluid dynamic pattern from the gases that once flowed from the top of that chamber through the connecting shaft. So the conventional explanation of this staining is that it comes from bats. And that the smell inside of these chambers, which is a very, very strong smell of ammonia, also comes from bats, which is absolute bullshit. And the first time I was yeah. in these chambers, I knew that that was nonsense. And that was just an explanation to get people to kind of not think about it. Oh, nothing to see here. It's just from the bats, you know, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, ACIDA Project also took a chemical analysis of this material. And it turns out that the staining, so this limestone also has a very high content of iron oxides and strontium. And these are extrusions of the material within this stone that A, these chambers had to be heated. For this material to be liquefied, when you look at these stainings, it's like drops that are coming on the, the chamber walls, coming out of the chamber walls. And there's layers of them. There's like hundreds of layers of these drops, which you can see by the, the different colors, like the layering of the on the stone, there's different shades of colors. So you can see that there's been hundreds and hundreds of layers of these things, these extrusions. So what causes that to happen? This pyramid is under static pressure. It's not like a sponge where it's being squeezed like this. Those stones aren't moving. So what's causing those extrusions to happen? Well, it's fluctuations of pressure inside the chamber. So if there's super high pressure in the chamber and then it drops to super low pressure, What's going to happen to those extrusions? They're going to get sucked out of the stone and it'd be extruded on the walls of the chamber. But you also have, high, have to have high heat for that to happen. So again, this is chemical staining inside of these chambers. And the ACIDA project did a chemical analysis of this material, and they took about 20 different samples from inside of the Red Pyramid. Most of the samples were from the pit. There's this big pit in the final chamber, which those stones were excavated out by tomb raiders and there was originally a floor in there so they were they were getting some samples from the core masonry but they also took some samples from the surface of these chamber walls and if you go to the next slide on the surface of the chamber walls 
there's elevated levels of copper, zinc, iron, antimony, and thorium. And go to the next go to the next slide. So they found they found in one of in one of the electron microscopy analysis they found a portion of these samples that had like 39% thorium in it. So it was a super high what? content. And, it, and, and if you look at these, and I have videos about this on my YouTube channel that give show all the, the stuff. And I, I, meant to, I may have put it in here. I don't even remember what I put in here this morning. Um, long story short, it's a crystalline material. Um, it, it's very crystally looking and it has been applied to the surfaces of these chambers. And so this is just evidence that currently in the mining industry in Egypt, they have copper, silver, zinc, platinum, and all of these precious base metals. So zinc and all that stuff can currently be found in Egypt. So what I was doing in the process of this research was I wanted to make sure that I could show evidence of all of these metals being found in Egypt, right? So, okay, we have a chemical analysis that shows that it's on the surface. Well, I want to be able to show that they could source that in Egypt, that it could be found and document that all of these minerals could be found in Egypt. Because this is part of the research and kind of proving that they were capable of doing this. So zinc was in Egypt. Copper was in Egypt. Iron was in Egypt. We know that, right? So let's go to the next one. This one? So that's just pictures of the metal. So the next thing is stibnite, which is antimony ore. And we also know that the dynastic Egyptians and the Egyptians were using antimony. If you go to the next slide, this is just a picture of the mineral. It's stibnite. That's antimony. So stibnite was all over ancient Egypt. They were using it. It's something called coal, K-H-O-L or K-O-H-O-L. And it was an ancient cosmetic. And they were also using it for pharmaceuticals and other purposes. So we know that they also had access to antimony and they were using antimony. So again, I'm just going through a process of justifying because I'm proposing that the internal chambers were sealed with a coating compound, very similar to the outside, but on the inside that it was a hydrophilic coating compound, right? To prevent water. It was like a water, watertight sealing compound that also had semi-catalytic properties. So you have all of these metal microparticles infused into your coating compound. It's not the most effective way to do catalysts because normally you want a three-dimensional catalyst that has a whole bunch of um, you know, reactant space. The more pores and stuff, the more activation, the more um, cap areas where you can get reactivity, the better with your catalyst. So painting catalyst on the walls is not a super effective way to do it, but it certainly wouldn't hurt. And if they had the capability of doing that, they certainly would have integrated it. So there's also some other things that actually catalyze this reaction that I haven't gotten to yet. Um, but nonetheless, the internal chambers were coated with this compound. And I was just documenting in my research that antimony could also be found in the historical record in Egypt. So we're just checking off all the boxes, right? Because we found this compound mm -hmm. on there and I wanted to show, hey, all of this stuff could be found in Egypt including the thorium, and we'll get to that next. Go ahead and click it. Okay, so this is a mineral called monazite, which is a basically a thorium ore. 
And I wanted to find, okay, so if we found thorium in this coating compound and there's thorium in these samples, where the hell are they getting the thorium from? And how could I possibly document that this is, this is connected to Egypt? So click on the next slide. So I start digging down the rabbit hole of this, this radioactive ores. And it took me back. This is the first slide that I ever made for the land of chem, my first presentation ever. So the title of my book is a play on, it's, it's a play on words. So the original name for Egypt is the land of K-H-E-M, which is the land of the blackness. And the word chem refers to this blackness, right? Conventional explanation is that this is from the alluvial soil around the Nile River, this dark black soil, which the Egyptian civilization was predicated upon. Okay, that's a good explanation. But I also interpreted that from the perspective of chemistry and the negredo stage of the alchemical process. So, yeah. right, the stage of the blackening, the chem. So this is also a connection between alchemy, right, which takes the word chem, and the word alchemy literally comes from K-H-E-M, alchemy, from the blackness. It's a word that is connected to the original word for ancient Egypt. So, again, my book, book is a play on words, the land of K-H-E-M, because it's a land of chemistry. So that's why I shortened the title because it's just a play on words for the, the original name for Egypt. So I started digging into the connections between this blackness and thorium. And if you click on the next slide, it, I believe that the true black, the chem of ancient Egypt, were these black mineral sands. It wasn't the alluvial soil around the Nile River. It was connected to the Negredo stage and the blackness and them doing chemistry. But it was chemistry as related to these. So the Egypt has these black mineral sands all around the coast of Egypt. And even today, they are currently mining monazite ore, ilmenite ore, rutile ore. All of these ores are contained in this black mineral sand that they currently get from Egypt. So this would have existed even in the ancient times. So the ilmenite ore, for example is a titanium oxide and iron oxide ore. And we found, mm. ilmenite, we found ilmenite crystal in a chemical analysis of these metal saw blades. So they, did a, so they went down in some saw cuts and they took chemical analysis of some material down in these saw cuts. And they found arsenical copper, which I think we talked about before, was what they were yep. making the metal metal blade out of. So it's an alloy. It's not just pure copper. Pure copper is not good for blades. But if you infuse it with 10% arsenic, you make an alloy that is basically as strong as steel. So it was a very, very hard, very, very functional metal blade. But they also found titanium oxide and iron oxide in there from ilmenite crystal. <laughs> so also ilmenite crystal and ilmenite, the mineral, is found in these black mineral sands. So if you click to the next slide, this just gives an explanation from the modern mining industry. So Egypt's black sand deposits are located all over the Nile Delta, and they contain substantial reserves of these heavy mineral sands. So ilmenite, magnetite, hematite, zircon, rutile, and monotite, all which contain uranium ore, thorium ore, titanium ore, um, all of these sophisticated metals and exotic metals can be found in the mineral sands that are all over Egypt's sand deposits. So 
this was probably the most remarkable discovery that I had made because it literally took my research full circle because that was the first slide that I ever made. And all I was trying to do at that point was explain that it wasn't necessarily the soil around the Nile River, but that there were connections to the alchemical process because from the blackness, right, alchemy, al meaning from, chemi meaning the blackness. So from the blackness is literally a, a phrase that describes an alchemical process extraction process because you wash yep. that blackness with solvents and you extract what you're getting you know the the volatile salts and compounds from that black stuff from the blackness that extraction process which is literally the definition of chemistry so that's all i was trying to do in that first slide was justify the title of my book and explain the explain the play on words but then when i started digging into this thorium connection i find these black sands of egypt and that's what the chemistry was because they were using all of these metal mi microparticles in all sorts of applications. So this is the end of the YouTube hour. Uh, yeah. Rock, rock. Oh yeah, yeah, dude. Your 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 subscribers are gonna get the the hot shit, dude. If you have if you thought this was good, just go subscribe on Rockfin. Oh man, I, I've been having a hard time sitting through all of this. Like I want to get up and run around or something. It's getting. I'm just like, Wah. um. <clears throat> This is the end of the first hour. Everybody go check out Land of Kim. He is also on social media under the same uh, moniker. Um, so you can find him on Instagram all over the place. Uh, yep. You can absolutely feel free to throw in every all your other information, Jeffrey, before we uh, leave the first yeah, that, hour. That's basically it. It's the Land of Kim on all socials and YouTube. So it's the land of C-H-E-M as in the land of chemistry. Definitely go check out my YouTube channel. I have 65 episodes that go super in-depth into explaining exactly how the Egyptian pyramids operate, which chemicals they were producing. All of these chemical analysis are more thoroughly explained on the YouTube channel, also on my Instagram. And, of course, my website is www.thelandofchem.com. If you want to pick up a copy of the book, I have a book on there. There's also some badass merch. Um, check it out, and I appreciate the support. Absolutely. Definitely go support Jeffrey. Absolutely awesome guy. Um, and come on over to the Rockfin side. And uh, on our side, it's free to watch, uh, free to comment. You have to sign up just like you did with YouTube to make comments. They've changed the pay system. It's uh, I'm not sure if that's in effect now yet or not, but they they moved it from $9.99 or whatever a month for uh, access to everybody. Now they've split it up. It's $15 a month if you want access to everybody, or you can uh, uh, just do individual subscriptions for $5. I, I don't, not really impressed with it, but uh, it is what it is. I have no control of it. Um, but my stuff is still up there for free. So if you, if you want to subscribe and support us, we absolutely appreciate it. Uh, and we love you guys.